Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Sunday. Great to have you here. We've got members of the media, academia, and financial services standing by as we analyze all the news and events for the week. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. But if you're tired for the same old story, off with a look at saving social security. You know, it's been a big topic, always a big topic. It's the third rail of American politics. Joining us on the line is Steve Robinson of the Concord Coalition. Steve, great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thanks. Uh, it's good to be here, Jeff. It's, yep, and we, I think we had you on know, about a year ago on the television network. So it's great to follow up with the work that you and the Concord Coalition are doing. Uh, before we jump into Social Security and getting your thoughts about the trustees' report and the path forward from a policy perspective, I want you to just enlighten myself and the audience about the Concord Coalition, who y'all are, what you do, and um, how people can find more information about you. Uh, sure. So the, the Concord Coalition, um, the name Concord refers to Lexington and Concord from Revolutionary War era. Um, but they were started in 1992 um, by uh, a pair of, of Republican and Democrat senators, Paul Songus and Warren Rudman. And they were created over the concern that the, uh, the federal government was running up excessive deficits and debt, and they were concerned about the effect this would have on, on future generations. And so this, this is actually uh, 1992 to 2022. This is our 30th anniversary. Happy anniversary. And, yeah, thanks. So no, no, I haven't been there the whole time. But uh, anyway, the organization has been around 30, 30 years. And essentially our job is to you know, educate uh, the public and members of Congress uh, about uh, the, the problems with deficit spending and encourage um, efforts to, to address the problem. Yeah. And and obviously a very important topic is, uh, you know, we're feeling the pinch for inflation, markets. Uh, I think people are always looking at their own budget. So it makes sense to look at that, the budget of the federal government as well as the state government as well. And people can certainly find more information about the issue briefs that you and the team write at Concord, C-O-N-C-O-R-D, coalition.org. Um, let's jump into it, Steve, because – uh, I guess just a few weeks ago, the what was it, the chief actuary maybe issued the report around Social Security, and it looks like, well, hey, here's news for you, uh, Steve. Uh, eventually, the money's going to run out. Uh, so, what's what's before we get to how do we rescue Social Security? What was your what's your reaction when you see these types of reports, um, which are necessary? They're, you're supposed to report out to the public. That's the role of the federal government, they're beholden to somebody. Uh, but, but what was yours and the Concord Coalition's reaction to that report? Yeah, so let me step back just a bit and sure. give you some history here. So the, the report you're referring to is known as the Annual Trustees Report. And basically, the Social Security Administration has been issuing a report on the financial status of the program 
going back, Social Security was enacted in 1935, and they actually had actuaries back then who made estimates. You know, this is the 1930s before computers, and they made estimates projecting out to the year 1980. Uh, and interestingly enough, those projections were remarkably accurate. But basically, every year since the, the 1940s, when the program uh, was, was enacted and started collecting taxes and paying benefits, there have been an annual trustees report. And the trustees, and in more recent times, the trustees refer to uh, a group of individuals who uh, basically there's, there's six trustees, four of which are members of the uh, administration. You have the Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, the Secretary of Labor, and the Commissioner of Social Security. Now, those four uh, are essentially appointed by, uh, by the president. Uh, as part of his cabinet. And then, of course, you have what are known as public trustees. And so since the 1983 amendments, there have been two individuals, one uh, Republican, one Democrat, who have been appointed to sort of represent the public. And so they serve uh, on the trustees uh, working group, and they prepare this report that comes out every year. And so essentially, you know, for going on, you know, 90 years, there have been these reports and for the first 30 years or so, uh, the, the reports were done differently because their methodology in terms of how they did the estimates changed. But in the mid-70s, uh, you had two things that happened that were not anticipated by the, the founders of the program, uh, one of which was uh, the end of the baby boom. And so birth rates began to fall and the population began to shift uh, due to, to demographic change. You had fewer births and longer life expectancies. So you had essentially a projection of being more beneficiaries relative to the number of workers. The other big change is they changed the formula. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, cost of living and inflation. So most people are aware Social Security provides an annual cost of living adjustment, which is based on the inflation rate. So your benefits, uh, your monthly benefits are adjusted each year to reflect the, the change in inflation. That all came about in 1972. Uh, Congress did a couple of things. They, they enacted automatic COLAs, uh, automatic cost of living adjustments. But the other thing they did is they changed the benefit formula. It used to be that um, Congress would just sort of periodically from the, the, from the 40s through the mid-70s, they would just vote every now and then. To, they would tend to vote in even-numbered years, surprisingly enough, uh, to, to increase everybody's benefits. So they would, they would increase them retroactively so that people who were already collecting benefits would get a higher benefit and new beneficiaries would get a higher benefit. And it became a political football. And in 1972, under President Nixon, there was a big fight. And they gave everybody a 20% across-the-board benefit increase. And the argument was, well, you know, we shouldn't be just doing this willy-nilly. And, you know, there should be some, some thought to how we do this. And so they, they tried to, to create an automatic provision that would increase benefits automatically so that your initial benefit would be based on wages. And then once you retired, your initial benefit would be based on inflation. And the formula, unfortunately, that they adopted in, in 72 was, was flawed. It didn't work as intended. And of course, also the economy in the 70s, you had the period of stagflation where you had yeah. uh, rising inflation and falling wages and, and recession. And so the, the program got into trouble. And in 77, they enacted a new formula and then, of course, they didn't quite take care of the problem. And so, again, in 1983, they enacted uh, some changes to the program, including increasing the retirement age. Now, this was 1982, and they voted to increase the retirement age gradually phased in over the period from 2000 to 2012. 
So they were looking out in the future and saying, well, we need to make an adjustment to reflect the fact that people are living longer. But, you know, so when you asked about what what do we think about the report that just came out, Mm -hmm. and, you know, my feeling of the report that just came out is deja vu, because (laughs) basically every trustee's report since 1977 has shown almost exactly the same thing. And that is that the program, uh, that the, the retirement of the baby boomers would cause the program to go into cash flow deficits somewhere around 2010 to 2020. So we've known for 40 years that the cash flow would go negative around, around that time period. In fact, in 2010, uh, benefits exceeded payroll taxes and they've been, we've been running cash deficits ever since. The other thing that the reports have all shown since the, the, the mid 70s and and uh, early 80s is that the trust fund uh, eventually would would run out of money. And the the trust fund insolvency date has varied between 2030 and 2060. So it was a pretty wide range over that period. But as we've come closer and closer to the year 2030, those range of estimates have narrowed. So basically for the past 10 years, the trustees have told us we're going to run cash flow deficits in 2010, and the trust fund is going to be exhausted sometime in the mid, early to mid-2030s. And so when this year's report came out, it showed pretty much what the last 10 trustees' reports have showed, and that is that around the year 2035, uh, the trust fund will be depleted. And, of course, what that happens, sometimes people get confused, and they think, well, the trust fund is run out of money and therefore we can't pay benefits, and that's the end of Social Security. And, of course, that's not correct. Uh, as long as there are people working and paying into the system, Social Security collects payroll taxes. Those taxes will go to pay benefits. Now, in the past, we've collected more taxes than we paid in benefits. Those surplus taxes were used to purchase government securities. Those government securities were put in the trust fund. And then what we're doing right now, and since 2010, is that we're drawing down on the trust fund, the interest that's earned by the trust fund, as well as some of the the principal bonds. And those will be redeemed. And once all of those are gone, around 2035, we'll only have the cash coming in to pay the benefits that are going out. And current estimates suggest that we'll have about 80 cents on the dollar. In other words, we can, based on the amount of payroll taxes, we could pay Whatever your benefit is, if, if you're supposed to get $1,000 a month, you would get $800 a mm. month. So we can pay basically uh, you know, 80% of, of scheduled benefits. Now, obviously, we don't want to wait till 2035 and tell people, oh, well, guess what? Next year, uh, you're only going to get $0.80 cents on the dollar. And so for years, Congress has sort of thought about and pondered and talked about and then ultimately done nothing. But, you know, they say, look, we eventually got to make some adjustments. Either we're going to have to raise the payroll tax or we're going to have to, uh, as most people are aware, the payroll tax goes up to 147000 in annual income. And if you make above that, you only pay taxes up to that amount and the amounts above that are exempt from the payroll tax. Uh, and so there have been discussions of raising the, the, the cap on the taxable wage. There have been discussions of raising the payroll tax. There have been discussions of raising the retirement age. And. You know, you get a bipartisan group together and they'll say, well, we'll do a little of both. We'll raise yeah. some extra revenue and we'll cut some, you know, reduce some benefits or change retirement age. But there's never been a consensus to move forward. There have been several times in the last few decades where it it looked like we might get something done, but it, it ultimately did, didn't happen. And so as a result, 
we just keep getting closer and closer to the year. I mean, you know, it's 2035 sounds like that's a long way away, but, you know, it's now 2022. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, that's, you know, 13 years away. And so and, and I'll know, be, we're getting – And by the way, I'll be 63, so I'll be very close. I probably won't ever <laughs> retire, but I'll be very close to – uh, retirement age. Uh, sorry, Steve, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but can I can I just pick on pick up oh, sure. on something you said? Because first of all, that was great education. I think a lot of people, you know, I kind of look at Social Security as like a a pago system. There aren't separate accounts for each of us that Jeff Snyder deposits or Steve Robinson deposits. It really is kind of money going in, money going out. Um, now we're not going to. I don't. I don't think the birth rate improving the birth rate um, is going to take place. Even in 13 years, even if we we all get busy doing that, uh, how do we? You know, there's a lot going on in Congress, uh, obviously, and they, and they're up for every election every two years. Senate, a third of the Senate's up every two years. How how do you bubble this up as an important issue? Because you know, the the minute anyone hears that, oh, my Social Security is going to be disrupted, um, or it's going to go away, or I'm going to get 75% on the dollar of what I quote unquote contributed, um, you know, it, people just kind of get, go crazy. Um, it, is it possible uh, fundamentally politically to solve this problem if if we get people in, in Congress on both sides of the aisle um, focused on this? Well, you know, as I mentioned before, I mean, there were several times in the last few decades, uh, probably most recently um, under under. President Bush back in 2005 and before that under President Clinton, uh, there were a couple of times where Congress got pretty close. They were these were sort of back channel meetings and discussions. And, you know, they were like, OK, when there have been several commissions put together and they would come up with proposals. Uh, but but it, it, it what what tends to happen is you have sort of this moderate group who will work together and they recognize that politically you can't do this all on the benefit side and you can't do it all on the tax side. And so they would come up with some sort of combination. But unfortunately, many of their colleagues take a different view. And that is essentially that there are a substantial number of members who want to do it all on the tax side. And there are a substantial number number who want to do it all on the benefit side. And so they just can't seem to bring themselves to compromise and say, look, you know, we're going to have to make you know, you know, there, there's going to have to be some trade-offs here, and they just seem to be unwilling to do that. And you know, I mean, if history is any guide, I mean, back in 1983, the last time we did reforms, I mean, we literally were on the verge of the checks not going out before Congress cut a deal. <laughs> and again, the the deal they cut back then was a, a multi-part. They they delayed colas used to be paid in, in June or July. And they move that to, to December so that the checks, your December check is received in January, so you get your call in January. So they, they moved, they delayed colos by six months. They raised the retirement age prospectively starting, you know, 20 years from then. Uh, they began taxing Social Security benefits, which, you know, is, is taxing your Social Security benefits, is that a benefit cut or is that a tax increase? Or, you know, it depends on, you know, how you do it, I guess. But, you know, they, they made some substantial changes. Now, they didn't actually raise the payroll tax back then. What happened is in 77, the payroll tax was already supposed to go to 12.4%. They simply sped it up. It was going to go to 124 in 2011, and they moved it up to, to, to 19, uh, 1990. Um, but but it, they didn't raise it. They just they just changed the timing of when it took effect. Yeah. But anyway, but it was, it was a compromise. But the problem then is, 
the, the, the problem they were addressing, the size of the expected deficit was about 2% payroll. Well, now the deficit, because we've sort of dropped all of the years in which we had surpluses and we've added a bunch of years in which future years in which we have deficits, now the shortfall is about 4% of payroll. So the, the, the problem is twice as large. And so, you know, even though in the verge of checks not going out and the, the problem was half as small and they cut a deal and they came to a compromise, you know, now the problem's twice as big. The, the country seems, you know, perhaps even more divided politically. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I don't, <laughs> sorry to say, I don't have a lot of room or a lot of reason for optimism that Congress, in fact, is, is not going to simply wait until the last minute. And the problem is, the, is the, the shortfall is so much bigger now than it was then that waiting till the last minute, the options that are, you know, remain on the table uh, of how you fix the problem are, are very few. In fact, if you wait long enough, there's really nothing you can do on a prospective basis. And as normally the thought is, we're not going to cut benefits for current beneficiaries. We're going to phase something in. We're going to, you know, raise the retirement age gradually so that future workers have to retire later to get their full benefit. But if you wait till 2030 or 2035, there's nothing you can phase in that will prevent insolvency. And so, in fact, I, I just recently published a paper on, on our website that raises the issue of, of general revenue financing. I mean, historically, the program has largely been financed by payroll taxes. Uh, the idea that President Roosevelt had was that this is a, you know, and it's an insurance program that people pay in and then they get back, you know, in proportion to what they paid in. Now, actuarially, that wasn't really true for the most early part of the program. People got much more than they paid in. But the principle was the payroll taxes would fund your benefits. But if we wait long enough, unless we're willing to simply raise everybody's payroll taxes across the board, there's nothing you can do on the benefit side to stop the program from becoming insolvent. And so what that tends to suggest is that, and then Congress has done this a few times in the past, they'll simply credit the trust fund with general revenue. They'll simply say, look, we got a shortfall. We can't address it. We're just going to put some general revenue in the trust fund and pay for it out of general taxes. We've done the same thing with a highway trust fund. The highway trust fund was originally created. We were going to raise the gasoline tax and we would pay for roads and pay for the interstate highway. Because Congress hasn't increased the, the gasoline tax since I think the, the early mid 1990s, the payroll, ta the, the, the gasoline tax is not high enough to pay for the highway trust fund. And so Congress has simply credited the highway trust fund with general revenue in order to pay for the roads. So the precedent is Congress is likely to do the same thing with Social Security. For example, back in 2011 and 2012, Congress enacted a reduction in the payroll tax. They cut everybody's payroll tax by two percentage points for two years. Well, that would have deprived the trust fund of over $200 billion and caused the trust fund insolvency date to move forward. In order to avoid that outcome, they simply credited the trust fund with the payroll taxes that, in fact, they didn't collect. And they said, we're going to cut your payroll taxes, but we're going to credit the trust fund with an equivalent amount of general revenue. So, you know, the precedent is there, both in terms of highways and in terms of what we did in 2011. And, you know, my, my concern from a program's perspective is we're going to fundamentally change the nature of the program by essentially turning it into a general revenue-financed program. And if we wait long enough, I see that as, in fact, the only politically viable option. 
because Congress won't vote to cut benefits across the board, and I'm not sure they'll vote to raise payroll taxes across the board. So anyway, that's a little little note of pessimism there. Well, that's okay, and I think reality is what we need. Um, You know, we can't can't always have a rosy picture that this is going to be Perfect, but let me let me take a step back, and and then, unfortunately, we've only got about a couple minutes left. But I want to ask you this, and you know, you you mentioned that there might not be the political will, um, and I'm putting words in your mouth. So if I misquote you or misparaphrase, you tell me. Uh, but you know, there's just not that political will to do something. But politicians are in a political market; they're looking for votes, and really, they get votes based on what they do for their constituents. So is this a matter of all of us, uh, people listening to this show, people that you're talking to, I'm talking to on a regular basis, needs, need to raise this issue. Not to disrupt the program, but to make it solvent. Because you know, we did a show last week where there are a lot of people, especially in the lower income spectrum, that depend on this program. They may not have a 401k or an IRA or a home. Uh, so they depend on getting back something for their retirement. So this is really that, as I said, uh, that that stool, that important stool. So, you know, can can we change minds of those who are maybe on the uh, on the fence of doing something by really educating ourselves and those around us to make change? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so you I mean you're completely right that that the, the social security and Medicare programs are incredibly important to a vast majority <laughs> of Americans. They they basically rely on those benefits to support them in retirement. Um, and so there's no question the program is important, but, but here's the dilemma that Congress faces. I mean, you know, think of the last time you heard a politician say, I'm going to raise your taxes and cut your benefits. Please vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so the, the dilemma that Congress faces is, you know, you've got 60 million, 65 million seniors who are collecting benefits. And so if you cut their benefits, they're not going to want to vote for you because you cut their benefits. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got 180 million workers who don't want to pay higher taxes. And so if you say, okay, do I raise the taxes of 180 million workers and, and, and upset them, uh, or do I cut the benefits mm. of the, the seniors and upset them, or do I a little bit, do a little bit of both and upset both groups? And so from a politician's perspective, it's a no-win situation, which, of course, you know, the, 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 the cure-all solution supposedly is, well, we'll just raise the taxable maximum. Uh, as I mentioned before, the payroll tax only goes up to 147000 That in, That amount is indexed every year. But essentially, if you were to take the cap off and tax all wages at the 12%, 12.4% tax rate, you could get a lot of money. The problem is, is a lot of money is still not enough to fix the problem. I mentioned before the problem, the, the shortfall is about 4% payroll. Mm-hmm. If you take the cap off completely, you only get about 2.5% of payroll. So you've only fixed about 60% of the problem. Th- well, you can say, oh, great, that's that's 60%. But it's not 100%. So you still have to either raise the, the, the tax rate and or cut benefits. So there is no simple solution. Um, yeah. You know, despite what, what you know, a lot of people say, you know, all you have to do is take the cap off and problem solved. But, in fact, that's not, not the case. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Just uh, real quick. I mean, didn't they do something similar with Medicare? I, I don't have my paste up yes, in front of me. Absolutely. But they popped yes. the cap. And, the- and, and has that yeah. solved the problem for <laughs> for Medicare. <laughs> well, no. It, it, you know, ironically, though, the, the, the Medicare tax is only 2.9%. Sure. So you're adding basically a 3% tax on everybody's income above 150000 roughly. Right. Well, the payroll tax is 124 Well, if you add that to the three, you're talking about an extra 15 percentage points. So someone who's self-employed, in addition to paying the income tax, which was 
you know, if, if the Tax Cuts and Act of 2017 expire, you're, you'll talk about a, a top rate of about 40 percent. Well, you add on top of that a 15 percent payroll tax. You know, you're talking tax rates above 50, you know, throw in your state income tax. You're talking a top tax rate of about 60 percent or more. Mm-hmm. The question is, you know, do you really want to have a 60 percent top tax rate? Now, in the past, tax rates have been higher than that, but they only applied to the top you know, 1% of, of income, um, whereas now the, the top rate applies to about you know, 20% of income. So the economic effect would, would be substantially larger. And so you know, it's not clear you know, if you say, well, we'll fix Social Security by taking the cap off. Well, as you point out, we still have a problem with Medicare. So that means you're going to raise the tax even more, you know, and so that your top rate's going to be 65 or 70%. I mean, you know, it's not like there's just one problem to solve. You can't just solve Social Security. You also have the problem with Medicare. Yeah. And, you know, the, the budget overall is not balanced. So if you're going to try to balance the budget and fix Social Security and Medicare, you know, the top rate's approaching 80%. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't work out, I guess, in the early 80s uh, or late 70s, right? I think you were... You mentioned uh, stagflation and and some of the things that it didn't work out too well, and you know I think we're in a, maybe in a better spot. Many people are in a better spot. Steve, we're going to have to leave it there. I, I mean, great in depth analysis. Anyone who is interested, I think everyone should be interested in Social Security and the solvency of the program. Um, and for more information, you can certainly go to the Concord Coalition. That's C O N C O R D Coalition dot org for more information and i know steve you always put out some new some new issue briefs we'll be checking it out throughout the rest of the summer into up to november steve robinson great to talk to you thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning thanks jeff it's good to be here imagine a new television network that will make you richer healthier and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docuseries. 33 years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you got to start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're going to change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Are you stuck with a low credit score? A credit report and score that's causing you to be denied credit or pay higher interest rates than others for the same things? 
Then do what Terrence did and call Credit Repaired for your free credit evaluation to help restore your credit. I started thinking about buying a new house and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I, I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the Welcome back. And now we're going to shift gears to take a look at what's happening on Capitol Hill in terms of legislation, litigation, and regulation. And joining us on the line, he's one half of the famed Legal Eagles, but we also know him as Kevin Walsh, a principal with Groom Law Group. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Jeff, thanks for having me on. And listeners and Jeff, I hope you all had a great Fourth of July last weekend. Absolutely. Uh, it was you know, a week off for the Eagles, and you know we don't we don't do that very often. But so we we hope everybody had a chance, you know, to recharge and get ready for more of the Eagles. Absolutely. And let's. Um, what I wanted to do with today's segment with you is talk about the recent support, Supreme Court rulings. Forgetting the politics, I'm not interested in the politics. In particular, the West Virginia versus EPA ruling, and what, if anything, it could mean for regulatory bodies like the Department of Labor, uh, EBSA, the Employee Benefit Security Administration, and the retirement agenda? Uh, does it have a potential for uh, you know, muting some of the retirement agenda? Yeah, so Jeff, that's a great question. And, you know, there's three parts to that. I think first is, you know, what, what is what is a West Virginia versus EPA say? I think the second would be, you know, what's the, what's the legislative response likely to be? And I think third would be, you know, some speculation on how it's going to impact uh, EBSA. Um, so kind of jumping into the first part there, uh, you know, West Virginia versus EPA, uh, it's a, an administrative law case. Uh, essentially what happened was the Environmental Protection Agency, um, you know, engaged in rulemaking or updated rules uh, recently uh, that were going to have a very large economic impact and that were going to represent a significant change in regulatory posture um, from what it what it had done traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the Supreme Court said, essentially, was that, you know, if you've got a really old statute and you're coming up with a really big, really new interpretation, um, that, you know, courts are going to be very skeptical of really big, really new interpretations of really old statutes. Um, and, and some of that is, you know, if you're saying now, you know, 50 years later, that something's vague, that, that you know, really, folks, you had a 50-year opportunity to call it vague before. Um, and you haven't called it vague until now, mm-hmm. that, you know, really it, it, it's for Congress to change those rules, not for agencies to find, you know, broad grants of power in, you know, long, dormant uh, language. So big deal in the sense that it limits the ability of agencies to, you know, craft big new powers for themselves out of old statutes. So what do we think is going to happen here? I think legislatively, and, and, and here is here's where I think the case has been been you know somewhat you know critiqued a little bit in a way that's unfair. I think one of the comments has been, oh my gosh, now agencies won't be able to do anything. Now the government won't be able to do anything. And folks are like the government won't be able to do anything about climate change, about whatever other issue you want to talk about. Um, and really, what the what the case says is that uh, if if the government wants to do something about these issues. Um, you know, step one is legislate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if we go back separation of powers, you've got, you know, the, the legislative power and that's with the Congress, with Congress. So it's a, it's a pain in the butt 
for the House and Senate to get together yep. and reach an agreement on, on tough topics. But the court's reminding essentially the legislature that, you know, it's not the job of the executive branch, which is traditionally the enforcement arm, to, you know, craft big legislative-like solutions through rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the job of the legislative branch to come up with solutions that then the executive branch can implement. Can't, um, go on. Oh, I was just going to follow up with that. So let's put that is an excellent description, and I love the civics lesson too. So thank you about the co-equal branches of government: uh, executive, legislative, and and uh, red judiciary. Judiciary. Yep, thank you. Thank you. I clearly did not listen too well. But let's talk about the retirement, which is typically considered a a bipartisan, uh, one of the last few bipartisan uh, bastions. Um, You know, there's the Secure 2.0. We've seen both sides work together, but we've also seen rulemaking. Um, Does this – and I don't want to put you in a spot where you have to prognosticate, but could – there be, um, you know, when it comes to missing participants, which is your, uh, your one of your favorite topics, or the ESG or climate uh, issues, could there be challenges um, to what labor is doing because of of this ruling? I mean, does this impact? I guess my question, basically, with, in a succinct way, is: Does this impact th- th- some of the retirement well, agenda? So I, I think. We, we, we're breaking the retirement agenda into two pieces. We've got the legislative piece and the regulatory yep. piece. Yep. And, you know, on the legislative piece, this doesn't have a big impact because, you know, what the Supreme Court said largely is if Congress wants to do something, Congress can do something. Um, and so with Secure 2.0, one of the things we see is the creation of retirement lost and found, for example. Um, and, you know, it's an example of an area where, you know, Congress is stepping in. And actually coming out with a system and rules governing, you know, what what one ought to do uh, with respect to missing participants. And and nothing in this decision suggests that Congress can't do these things. Um, you know, so on a go forward basis, I would think Congress will probably be as involved as they've been historically. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a bipartisan area, I continue to expect to see bipartisan legislation where, you know, where the case has a bigger impact is on the regulatory side. And that's if, you know, if if the Labor Department wants to do or if EBSA wants to big new initiatives um, that, you know, looking at the text of ERISA, you don't see. Uh, this case is a bit of an inside fastball. Uh, and at a minimum, you'd expect this to cause DOL to sit back and think and say, you know, were we given express statutory grant of authority to do what we're doing? Um, are we looking at a statute that is 50 years old and coming up with, you know, big, exciting new uh, use cases for it. Um, and, you know, I, I think if, um, if, if, if DOL looks at it and says, you know, this is a new interpretation of something that's 50 years old, it, it really provides kind of a cautionary tale where, you know, based on, you know, the Fifth Circuit's decision in 2016, uh, based on this EPA case, uh, there's some strong hints that if, if you know, if, if DOL were to, you know, go very aggressively into novel areas, that courts would say, you know, you got to slow your roll, guys. Uh, Kevin, I guess my last question for you is, so if you're in the retirement ecosystem, either as a record keeper, someone like yourself who is guiding entities, uh, plan sponsors, record keepers, um, or participant, or someone who runs a plan, is it a wait and see? Are these the types of conversations that are added to um, just general discussions about what is facing the retirement industry? How do we improve plans, um, and, and part of those conversations. 
I mean, I think as a retirement industry, I think folks are generally focused on secure, mm-hmm. um, you know, secure 2.0 with, with, you know, the House and Senate having their own versions and some optimism that it can move this year. Uh, when we get to, you know, more abstract issues of, of APA and, and, you know, the limits of an agency's ability to or what agency overreach would look like, I, you know, I, I think those are topics that generally percolate behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really think the focus is on secure 2.0 right now. Well, let's hope that uh, – speaking of Secure 2.0, let's hope that uh, they're able to p- put together a package that makes sense both in the House and the Senate. And I know you and David will certainly keep us up to date on the comings and goings of that particular legislation. Kevin, we're going to leave it there. Really interesting insight and analysis. Really appreciate you stopping by. Give my best to David Levine, and we look forward to having you both back on the program next week. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks, listeners. Have a great weekend. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Sunday. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news in lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website and, of course, our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRN AM. We'll have a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.